welcome to Champagne and Murder, Please. I am your host, Brittany. I hope you all had a great week. Mine was crazy, hence why I'm late getting the podcast out. Sorry about that. My youngest started school this week, and it's been a bit of an adjustment for everyone involved. She's uh, taken a nap almost every single day this week, and she gave up naps a long time ago. So, you know, she's been feeling it. So today we are drinking Bloomond Blue Bubbly. Yes, it is blue, and it's very pretty. It's $23 at saracenywines.com. It's sweet, refreshing, and light. It tastes kind of peachy. It's good all by itself or mixed. Either way, try it out. You might enjoy it. And today I'm giving you two stories as one, an apology for being so late, and two, because I just love you guys. And as a warning, my family is all home, so there may be some random shrieks and stomping in the background. So don't worry, nobody's being murdered, and I apologize in advance for that. But anyway, here we go. So the first story that I have for you today is about Daniel Barter. Um, He was a little boy who went missing. So imagine you're camping with your family, having a good time, and all of a sudden you can't find your four-year-old. He was just there a second ago. How did he disappear so quickly? So you search the immediate area and he's nowhere to be found. Then the panic sets in because you're near water. Did he fall in? The woods are right there too. Did he wander in and get lost or get attacked by an animal? This happened to a family in 1959 while they were on vacation in Perdido Bay, Alabama. This is the story of missing four-year-old Daniel Barter. Daniel Barter was born on December 12, 1954. His parents were Maxine and Paul Barter. He was the third youngest of seven children. They lived in the 1700 block of Thrush Drive in Mobile, Alabama. His parents, siblings, and friends all called him Danny. He was described as a very sweet and pretty child. He was just four years old when he went missing. Leading up to his disappearance, there were a couple strange events that happened. The first event happened a month before Daniel went missing. His mother, Maxine, noticed a strange vehicle parked out in front of their house. She went out to the car to see who it was, and the driver, a male, immediately hid his face behind a newspaper and then drove off. Like, come on, dude, that was fucking weird. The second event, on an evening not long after the first incident, a neighbor saw a strange man peeking into the barter boys' bedroom window while they were all asleep. The neighbor went over and told Maxine about the man and showed her where the man had been standing. But by that time, though, he was already gone, but he did leave footprints in the dirt under the window. They called the police, and the police made casts of the footprints, and they took photographs. It's unclear, however, if this evidence is still in existence. Now, on the morning of Daniel's disappearance, there are conflicting reports of either his mother or his father taking him and a brother to the store to get drinks. In the report of Maxine taking him and his brother to the store, it said that she went inside leaving the boys in the car, and while she was in the store, an unknown man drove his car up right next to the barter's car and just stared at the boys for a while, without saying a word. And then he drove away. Daniel's brother told Maxine what had happened while she was gone, and the report of the father taking the boys to the store just states that Daniel was barefoot and only wearing gray boxer shorts that he'd slept in. And that when they returned to the campsite, he went to play in the water. So I'm assuming it was the mother because that was the most um, common thing that I read. And I think there was only one that said the the father took him. So we're going to go with mom took them. 
So June 17, 1959, Daniel went camping with his parents. Three of his brothers, an uncle, and two of his cousins, and his other siblings were staying with relatives. The group went per to Perdido Bay, Alabama, located near Lillian, Alabama. When they arrived on the bay's eastern shore, they spent the night in their uncle's car. On the morning of June 18th, Daniel, with one of his brothers and one of his parents, not sure which one it was, went to the store. And at around 9.45 that morning, Daniel's parents were preparing some fishing gear when Maxine noticed that Daniel was nowhere to be found. So she went and searched for him. It was only about 10 to 15 minutes of searching, but she couldn't find him anywhere. Then they contacted the local authorities to help search for Daniel. And Daniel, it seems, apparently just wandered away from the rest of his family. He was said to have been carrying a knee-high soda bottle at the time. And the area he disappeared from is swampy and infested with alligators and snakes. Real fun. The search started on the banks of Perdido Bay, just a few miles north of the U.S. 98 bridge that leads to Florida. There were 2,000 people, including 300 members of the U.S. Navy and local military bases, and 150 law enforcement officers and firemen from Alabama, Florida, and surrounding states involved in this search. Civilian volunteers and groups of 25 came together and walked shoulder to shoulder over a five-square-mile radius through the surrounding woods and swamps. Skin divers, which I looked up and found out are more, are more advanced snorkelers, essentially, um, they worked to search the bottom of the bay. Investigators theorized that maybe Daniel had been attacked by an animal, going so far as to kill and gut two alligators to search their stomachs for human remains, but they found no evidence to support this theory. They used jeeps, helicopters, and horses to search the area, and three days into the search, they used bloodhounds to comb the five-mile area, tracking Daniel's scent to the same spot on a nearby road. The bottom of the lake was dragged, sinkholes and thickets were searched, in the hopes of possibly jarring loose a body. They tossed dynamite into the bay and other surrounding areas where they thought Daniel might have fallen into. Maxine had told investigators that Daniel did not really like the water, and she didn't believe he would have gone into the bay voluntarily. The bay was very shallow at the time, and a person would have been able to walk a considerable distance without getting very wet. The undergrowth bordering the campsite was thick and prickly, and as Daniel was barefoot and wearing only boxer shorts, his family didn't believe he would have gone into the bushes either. After more than a week, the search was called off. There were no signs that Daniel had gone into the bay, and no evidence was uncovered. It was one of the most intensive searches in Baldwin County history. At the time, authorities also looked into the possibility that Daniel had been abducted, but they were never able to find anything to support this theory either. The family was not wealthy and never received any communications from any kidnappers, so a ransom motive was deemed unlikely. The incidents that had happened the month before and day of Daniel's disappearance led the family to believe that Daniel had been kidnapped by someone who had been stalking him for some time prior to him vanishing. Daniel's mother could not fathom that the kidnapper would bring harm to her boy, saying, quote, I hope now that someone did take Danny, because I know if they wanted him bad enough to kidnap him, they would take good care of him, end quote. The case remained open for some time, but frustrated investigators were unable to uncover any credible leads, and no remains were, were found and no sightings reported. As the years passed, files pertaining to Daniel's case were destroyed or lost to time. In 2008, the FBI and local law enforcement reopened Daniel's case after hearing a discussion in public. 
What exactly they heard was never publicly released. The new prevailing theory was that Daniel had been abducted, and a call was put out to those who recalled his disappearance, asking them to call the police. There are four working theories about what could have happened to Daniel. The current theory is that Daniel was abducted by an unknown person or persons. This is supported by the lack of physical evidence found at the campsite in Perdido Bay and surrounding area, as well as the numerous encounters the Barter family had in the days and weeks before and after he went missing. It's currently unknown if the encounters were with the same man or more than one man. Number two, one of the early theories in the case was that Daniel had drowned in Perdido Bay. However, his family disputes this as he didn't like water and there were no footprints in the sand leading to the water. As well, the bay was very shallow at the time. Number three, there is a theory that Daniel could have gotten lost in the area around the campsite given how thick the brush was. However, no evidence was found to support that theory. And number four, a final theory that has since been deemed unlikely is that Daniel was attacked and or eaten by an alligator. As aforementioned, hunters searched the stomach contents of large alligators seen near the bay, but found no remains or evidence that Daniel had met his this end. After Daniel's disappearance, his family moved to Texas. His father passed away in 1965, and his mother passed in 1995. And in 1997, his brother, who was born after Daniel disappeared, died of cancer. But the rest of Daniel's siblings are alive, and hopeful the case will one day be solved. They believe their brother is still out there and that one day they will be reunited. On dannybarter.com, a website dedicated to finding answers, the family posted this plea to the public. Quote, We strongly believe that someone out there knows what happened to Danny and possibly knows him as another identity. We hope to find him safe and sound. End quote. In 2009, his loved ones returned to the campsite to remember their missing brother and rededicate their half-century mission to find him. At the time of his disappearance, he was three feet tall and weighed about 50 pounds. He had brown hair and brown eyes, and he has scars on his fingers and one on his tongue. Currently, his case is classified as a non-family abduction, and if he is still alive, he would be 69 years old. If you have any information regarding this case, you can contact the Baldwin County Sheriff's Office at either 205-937-0200 or 215-972-8589. Also, tips can be called into your local FBI field office. And that is the disappearance of Daniel Barter. Hey guys, I just wanted to pop in and say lately, I have been back on my workout routine. And let me tell you, Liquid IV has been there for me before, during, and after my workout sessions. In just one stick, you get five essential vitamins and two times faster hydration than water alone. I've been using it before my workouts and I feel so much better during them. It's amazing. So you can use it first thing in the morning or before you work out like I do, or when you feel run down or how about after a long night out with friends? Everybody knows you're going to need it then. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone with three times the electrolytes. Electrolytes is what blankets crave of traditional sports drinks. John and I have used Liquid IV after long hot days outside with the kiddos and even after nights out with our friends. We love Liquid IV for how well it works and how fast we feel rehydrated. My favorite flavor is the strawberry lemonade and John loves the watermelon one. I also love that it's made with premium ingredients and it's non-GMO, free of gluten, dairy, and soy. 
and Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. You can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code CAMP, that's C-A-M-P, at checkout. It's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code CAMP, C-A-M-P, at liquidiv.com. Ready to shop Better Hydration? Use my special link, which is zen.ai.champagneandmurderplease, to save 20% off anything you order. And stay hydrated, y'all. Okay, so the second story that I have for you is also a disappearance story. Um, This one's about Dorothy Arnold. So the last time anyone saw Dorothy Arnold, she was outside of a bookstore on 5th Avenue and 27th Street in Manhattan. It was the middle of the day on December 12, 1910. She was in the store perusing, and then she ran into a friend. She had told this friend she had planned to take a walk in Central Park, and her friend was going to meet her mother for lunch at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. According to the Charlie Project, Dorothy had about $30 with her when she left her home on the Upper East Side, which would be about $930 today. She was beautifully dressed and was shopping for a dress for an upcoming party. Her mother had offered to go with her, but she declined and said she would meet her for lunch later. So, who is Dorothy Arnold? Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold was born in New York City. She was the second of four children. She was the daughter of perfume importer Francis Rose Arnold and Mary Martha Parks Arnold. Her older brother John was born in December 1884, and her two younger siblings, Dan, was born in 1888, and Marjorie was born in 1891. Her father was a Harvard University graduate, and a senior partner at F.R. Arnold & Company, which was a company that imported fancy goods. Her Aunt Harriet Maria Arnold was married to Supreme Court Justice Rufus W. Peckham. Her her, Her family on her father's side were descendants of English passengers who had arrived on the Mayflower, and her mother had come from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. And due to her family's social standing, they were listed in the Social Register, which... The Social Register is a semi-annual publication in the United States that indexes the members of American high society. Dorothy went to the Velton School for Girls in New York City and attended Bryn Mawr College in Pennsylvania, where she majored in literature and language. After she graduated in 1905, she was living with her family at 108 East 79th Street and tried to start a career as a writer. In the spring of 1910, she had submitted a short story to McClure's magazine, but it was rejected. Her friends and family were amused by her aspirations and teased her about this rejection. Rude. She went out and got herself a P.O. box specifically to receive letters from magazines and publishing houses. She then submitted a short story again to McClure's titled The Poinsettia and the Flame in November 1910. And that story was also rejected. Poor girl. And according to her friends and family, this second rejection left her dejected and embarrassed. Two months before she vanished, Dorothy had asked her father if she could get an apartment in Greenwich Village in order to write. Francis forbade Dorothy to move out of the house, telling her, quote, a good writer can write anywhere, end quote. She continued to pursue her career in writing, but she found no success. The morning of December 12, 1910, Dorothy informed her mother she was going to go dress shopping for her younger sister Marjorie's upcoming debutante party. 
Mary offered to accompany Dorothy, but she declined her mother's offer, telling her she would call if she found a dress that was suitable. She left her family's home around 11 a.m. She walked from her house on 79th to the park and Tilford store at the corner of 5th Avenue and 59th Street. At around 12 p.m., she charged a half-pound box of chocolates to her account. She placed it in her muff. That sounds really bad when you say that out loud. Sorry. <laughs> and walked another 22 blocks south to Brentono's bookstore at 27th Street and 5th Avenue. While at the bookstore, she purchased Engaged Girl Sketches, a book of humorous essays by Emily Calvin Blake. The cashiers who attended Dorothy later said that she was courteous and did not exhibit any unusual behavior. While outside the bookstore, Dorothy ran into her friend named Gladys King, who later recalled that the two spoke briefly about Marjorie's upcoming party and that Dorothy seemed to be in good spirits. Gladys then excused herself to go meet her mother for lunch at the Waldorf Astoria, and Dorothy said she was going to walk back home through Central Park. Gladys last saw Dorothy on 27th Street shortly before 2 p.m. She turned back and waved to Dorothy one last time. Oddly enough, there are no published reports of Dorothy shopping for the intended dress. By the early evening, Dorothy had not returned home for dinner. She was not one to miss a meal without informing her family, and they became very worried. They started to call her friends to see if they knew where she could be, but no one had seen her. One of her friends, Elsie Henry, phoned the family's house shortly after midnight to see if she had returned home yet, and they told her that she had. When she asked to speak to Dorothy, however, Mary hesitated and told Elsie that Dorothy had gone to bed with a headache. What are you up to, Mary? The Arnold family, fearing their daughter's disappearance would cause unwanted media attention, embarrassed them socially. They did not report their daughter missing to the police for weeks. Now... Before we rip into the Arnolds for such a bonehead move, consider the story of Adele Boaz. The 13-year-old girl was reported missing from Central Park and was later found to have run away to Boston. She later returned home and the Boaz family, who were also Upper East Siders, were scandalized and shamed in the newspapers after the incident. So maybe the family was holding out hope that after her last rejection, Dorothy just needed some space and would soon be home. In an effort to keep the incident out of the press, the Arnolds quietly contacted John S. Keith, a family friend and lawyer, the morning following Dorothy's disappearance. Keith came to the house and searched Dorothy's room. He found that, except for the clothes Dorothy had gone out in, nothing of Dorothy's was missing. He also found letters with foreign postmarks, two folders for transatlantic ocean liners, and burned papers in the fireplace. The burned papers were presumed to be her rejected manuscripts. Over the following weeks, Keith visited jails, hospitals, and morgues in New York City, Philadelphia, and Boston, but there was no trace of Dorothy. After Keith's efforts turned up nothing, he suggested that the Arnolds contact the Pinkerton detectives to investigate. The Pinkerton detectives searched area hospitals and other places that Dorothy was known to have frequented, but found no sign of Dorothy. They questioned Dorothy's friends and former college classmates about her whereabouts, but no one had seen or heard from her. The ocean liner literature Keith had found in Dorothy's room led the Pinkerton investigators to theorize that she may have eloped with a man to Europe. They searched the marriage records but couldn't find her name. Agents were then sent overseas to search the ocean liners arriving from New York. While they found many women fitting Dorothy's description, they did not find Dorothy herself. 
So after Keith and the Pinkertons couldn't find any trace of Dorothy, they advised the Arnold family to contact the New York City Police Department. The police then advised the family to hold a press conference in order to get as much publicity as possible. Sounds like exactly what they were trying to avoid in the first place. So Francis resisted this idea, shockingly, but he eventually agreed. On January 25, 1911, the reporter swarmed Francis's New York City office where he informed them that Dorothy had disappeared and offered a $1,000 reward, which today would be about $31,000, and he offered it for information leading to Dorothy's whereabouts. During this press conference, reporters asked if it was possible his daughter was still alive and had simply run off with a man as he did not allow his daughter to date. Francis, pissed off by now, vehemently denied this, stating, quote, I would have been glad to see her associate more with young men than she did, especially some young men of brains and position, one whose profession or business would keep him occupied. I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do, end quote. So, now I'm wondering, since her sister's party was coming up soon, did they still have the party? And what did they say about Dorothy not being there if they did have the party? Sorry, just a random thought. Um, anyway, reporters soon found out that Francis's comment was in reference to George Griscom Jr., a man Dorothy had been romantically involved with since she had been at Bryn Mawr. He was a 30-year-old engineer who came from wealthy Pennsylvania family with whom... He still lived at the Kenmar Hotel in Pittsburgh. The reporters also discovered that in September 1910, Dorothy had told her parents that she was going to Boston to visit a former college friend. But in reality, she was holed up for a week in a hotel with George. And her parents only found out when she had pawned $500 worth of jewels to pay for the week-long stay. After she got back home, she was forbidden to continue her relationship with George because her parents found him to be unsuitable. But of course, as children will do, she continued to correspond with George, and the two saw each other for a final time in early November, shortly before George left on vacation with his parents. After Dorothy disappeared, George was found on vacation with his parents in Florence, Italy. The Arnolds sent a telegram to George on December 16th, asking him for any information he may have about Dorothy's whereabouts. George denied any knowledge of her whereabouts and claimed to know nothing about her disappearance. Early in January 1911, Dorothy's mother and her brother John traveled to Italy by ship to forcibly interrogate George. They met with him in his room at the Anglo-American Hotel on January 16th. George again maintained that he knew nothing about Dorothy's disappearance. During the visit to Italy, Mary and John ordered George to give them the letters that Dorothy had sent to him. John later claimed the letters Dorothy sent contained nothing important to the investigation, and he later destroyed them. But if they weren't important, why bother destroying them? Hmm. Anyway, when he returned to the United States in February 1911, George told the press that he had intended to marry Dorothy once she was found and on the one condition that her mother approved of the marriage. Mary later told reporters she would never approve of a marriage to George. That same month, the San Francisco Chronicle reported that hotel clerks at George's hotel said they had seen a black-veiled woman that they believed was Dorothy. According to the staff, George and the veiled woman had an earnest talk. They weren't able to hear what was actually said, and they noticed that the woman seemed to be greatly agitated. In the months following Dorothy's disappearance announcement, George spent thousands of dollars taking out ads in major newspapers that asked Dorothy to come home. 
The end of January 1911, the New York City Police Department said they still believed that Dorothy was still alive and that she would return on her own. Dorothy's family, on the other hand, believed that she was dead. Around this same time, Francis told the press that he believed from the beginning that his daughter must have been attacked and killed when she was walking home through Central Park, and that her body had to have been thrown into the Central Park Reservoir. He noted two clues, which he wouldn't publicly disclose that confirmed his suspicions. So in his own mind, that's what happened. Police, however, dismissed this theory because the day, in the days that led up to Dorothy going missing, the temperature in New York City had dropped to 21 degrees, and the reservoir was frozen solid. The police did search in Central Park, but they found no trace of Dorothy. When the reservoir thawed that spring, police went in and searched the water, but they didn't find any bodies. Police distributed circulars throughout the United States and Mexico in the days following Dorothy's announced disappearance. They included her picture, physical description, and information about the reward. The New York Times continued to cover the story nearly every day. And this publicity led investigators to receive calls from people across the United States who claimed to have seen Dorothy, of course. The calls were investigated but proved to be untrue. The Arnold family also received two ransom notes from alleged kidnappers who demanded rewards of $5,000, or $160,890 today, for Dorothy's return, but both of those proved to be hoaxes as well. In the early days of February 1911, Francis received a postcard signed Dorothy, bearing a New York City postmark that read, I am safe. Now, while the handwriting matched Dorothy's, Francis said he believed that someone had copied her handwriting from the samples that had been featured in the newspaper, and that this postcard was nothing more than a cruel joke. And around the same time, a jeweler in San Francisco claimed a woman he thought to be Dorothy had him engrave a diamond wedding ring for her on January 7th with the inscription, quote, to AJA from ERB, December 10, 1910, end quote. It was shortly after this that the New York City Police Department announced they were going to stop investigating Dorothy's disappearance, saying that they believed she was dead. New York City Police Deputy Police Commissioner William J. Flynn stated, quote, that now seems the only reasonable way of looking at the case. The girl has now been missing for 75 days, and in all that time, not a single clue has been found that was worth the name. We have no evidence that a crime has been committed and the case is now one of a missing person and nothing more, end quote. Police would continue to investigate reports of sightings of Dorothy, but none of them led to Dorothy. Numerous theories and rumors surrounding Dorothy's disappearance continued to come in. One of those theories was that Dorothy had slipped on the icy sidewalk, struck her head, and was in a hospital with complete amnesia. How convenient. This theory did not pan out as there were no women who matched Dorothy's description in area hospitals who had sustained a concussion. Other theories included one that she had been drugged and abducted, but that was considerably unlikely as she was last seen on a busy street in the mid-afternoon. George then theorized that she had completed suicide because she had been despondent over her failed writing career. Because after the second story she submitted was rejected, she evidently wrote a letter to George that expressed her disappointment over her lack of progress as a writer and alluded to suicide, stating, quote, Well, it, talking about the short story, has come back. McClure's has turned me down. Failure stares me in the face. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. 
Mother will always think an accident has happened, end quote. Some of Dorothy's family and friends also said they thought that Dorothy had completed suicide, but they felt that the reason was because of her faltering relationship with George. The New York world also supported this reasoning after they discovered that George's cousin Andrew had jumped to his death from an ocean liner after he had been forbidden to marry an English governess. But one of the more widespread rumors was that Dorothy was pregnant. Of course, they always go there and had sought out an abortion, and had died during or after the procedure, and then had therefore been secretly buried or cremated. This rumor gained some credibility when, in April 1916, an illegal abortion clinic operating out of a basement of a home in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, was raided by the police. The clinic had been run by Dr. C.C. Meredith and had become notoriously known as, quote, the House of Mystery, end quote. After scores of women from the area had gone missing after they had visited this clinic, one of the other doctors who worked at the clinic, Dr. H.E. Lutz, testified to the New York County District Attorney that Dr. Meredith told him that Dorothy had died there after complications from an abortion. Dr. Lutz claimed that, like many of the women who had undergone abortions at the clinic and died, her body had been buried in the furnace. While the district attorney said that he believed that Dorothy had died at the clinic, Francis thought the story was, quote, ridiculous and absolutely untrue, end quote. The Arnold family lawyer, John S. Keith, later told the media that two months after Dorothy vanished, he received a tip from an attorney in Pittsburgh that she was in a local sanitarium. Keith claims that he and two detectives traveled to the sanitarium but found out that the woman was not Dorothy. More than five years after Dorothy vanished in April 1916, a convicted felon named Edward Glenaris, who was imprisoned in Rhode Island for attempted extortion, claimed that he had been paid $250 to bury the body of a young woman in December 1910. Glenaris claimed that an acquaintance known only as Little Louie hired him to drive a woman from the home from a home in New Rochelle to West Point, New York. At the home in New Rochelle, Glenaris said that he and little Louis were met by two men, one of whom was named Doc, and the another whom Glenaris described as wealthy and well-dressed, which matched George's physical description. Glenaris and little Louis then loaded the unconscious woman into the car and drove her to a house in Weehawken, New Jersey. During this trip to New Jersey, Glenaris said that little Louis told him that the unconscious woman was Dorothy Arnold. Glenaris also stated he recognized the woman to be Dorothy and could identify a signet ring on the index finger of her left hand that matched one she owned. The next day, little Louie contacted Glenaris and told him to quote-unquote finish the job. Upon returning to Weehawken, Doc informed the men that the woman had died during an operation at the home. Glenaris then said that they drove the body back to New Rochelle, wrapped her in sheets, and buried her in the cellar. Glenaris told this story to the warden, who then reported it to the authorities. However, during subsequent interviews, Glenaris acted confused and claimed he knew nothing about Dorothy's whereabouts. Police then followed up and dug up several cellars in the area, but no human remains were found. Francis vehemently denied Glenaris's claim, telling reporters, quote, So far as it appears on the face of the man's story, he is talking utter nonsense. End quote. For years after Dorothy's disappearance, there were numerous sightings from all over the United States still being reported. Police did continue to investigate, but all the reports proved to be false. The Arnold family also continued to receive letters from women who claimed to be Dorothy. 
These were also investigated and also all false. One such letter came from an attorney in California who claimed that Dorothy was now living as Ella Nevins in Los Angeles, a claim which her father disputed. In April 1921, the case gained new attention when, during a lecture in New York, in New York Captain John H. Ayers of the Bureau of Missing Persons claimed that Dorothy's fate had been known to the Bureau and her family for some time. Ayers refused to elaborate and would not say if Dorothy was alive or dead. Ayers says he was misquoted and denied that Dorothy's fate was known. In the weeks following Dorothy going missing, Francis spent about $250,000 trying to find his daughter, which would be um, just over $8 million today. He maintained that he believed Dorothy had been kidnapped and murdered on the day she disappeared or shortly thereafter. Francis died on April 6, 1922. In his will, he intentionally made no provisions to Dorothy, stating that he was quote-unquote satisfied that she was not alive. According to Keith, Dorothy's mother did not share her husband's opinion that their daughter was kidnapped and killed, and she remained hopeful that she was still alive. Mary died on December 29, 1928. Shortly after that, Keith publicly stated he believed that Dorothy completed suicide because of her failed writing career. In Mary Arnold's obituary, United Press Associations referenced the hunt for Dorothy as, quote, the great, really great search of the age and one that did much to develop modern newspaper police coverage, end quote. The only fact that is known for sure is that one day, the 25-year-old heiress went out for a walk, and like a whiff of perfume, she vanished into thin air. The unsolved case was eventually closed, and all of Dorothy's loved ones went to their graves without knowing what had happened to her. Her case was written about often through the 20th century and continues to be the subject of podcasts, <clears throat> articles, and speculation in online forums. In her young adult novel Lost in 2009, author Jacqueline Davies combines the story of Arnold's disappearance with that of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. There is also a short horror novel, The Lurker at the Threshold, in 1945 by August Derleth, and H.P. Lovecraft mentions the disappearance of Dorothy Arnold near the end in the list of disappearances and 14 phenomena. In 2019, BuzzFeed Unsolved tried to solve the case, but I couldn't find anything that said that they actually solved it. But that was the case of Dorothy Arnold. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Champagne and Murder. Please, we really do appreciate you all. And I hope that you guys have a great weekend. Um, I hope you have a great week until I talk to you next week. And if you want to follow us or find us on socials, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram and TikTok. If you'd like to send in any story suggestions, um, anything that you would like to hear, you can email us at champagneandmurderplease at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And if you want any stories of yours read on the podcast, you can send those in too. Any ghost stories, any I know a murderer stories, any, anything. We'll read it for you. And remember, stay safe and don't take candy from strangers. Goodbye.